This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is novelist Kimberly Collins. Thanks for joining us, Kimberly. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Kimberly Collins is author of Blood Creek, a historical novel that's set in the era of the Appalachian coal mine wars in the early 20th century, one of the largest armed insurrections in U.S. history. You live in Tennessee now, but you grew up in the coal mine country of West Virginia in Matawan, I I think. Can you tell us about the 1920 Matawan Massacre? I can. And it's actually pronounced Mate One. Um, I think there's a Matawan, New York. And a lot of people get it confused. Well, you know, it's, um, I, I did because, well, anyway, I knew it was familiar with Matawan. I, I apologize. So it's Mate One? Mate One, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So the, the Mate One massacre uh, took place right in downtown. The Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency uh, on the uh, behest of the coal operators, the Stone Mountain Coal Company, uh, came into town to evict people from their company houses. And they were evicting them because the miners were threatening to strike. So and they had joined the union. So they coal operators didn't want any any part of that. They were just trying to squash this this uh, uprising. And. They came to town to evict the people, and then the um, police chief of the town had a confrontation with the Baldwin Feltz people as they were leaving town. And there's a lot of um, unknowns about who fired the first shot. Uh, but at the end of it, I think about 12 people were dead, uh, most of the Baldwin Feltz people. Um, uh, the miners had a few people on top of buildings as snipers. I think they, they were they were prepared for it. So there's a lot of... Uh, unanswered questions about what really, really happened that day. And the mayor of the town uh, was subsequently killed um, as well. He was he was one of the victims in the in the shooting. Hmm. And this is just one of many incidents in the coal mine wars. And your novel focuses on the women of Appalachia. Why have you done that? You know, I, I grew up hearing um, these stories about the mine wars. And they were always told from the male perspective. So my great-grandfather and his brothers were very instrumental in the early days of the formation of the Union in Mingo County. And so, you know, these stories were passed down, and they were always talked about. And it was um, just—and coming from this small town, it was—that's just what it was. You know, it was was a a Union town and and hard-scrabble people. So we had always heard these stories from the male perspective. And I had always wondered growing up, well, what was my great-grandmother doing? What were the women doing? And then a few years ago, a cousin of mine told me a story about our great-grandmother um, that happened right after the massacre in Mate One. And I don't want to tell what that was because it'll be in the next book in the series. Um, but it was just very eye-opening. And I thought, that's the story I need to tell. And so as I'm doing research for Blood Creek, which is actually about the Paint Creek and Cabin Creek um, strike and, and the battle that happened there, um, I just found a whole lot of information about the women that were involved in the strike. And one of them being Mother Jones. She was, um, you know, in her own words, she was a hellraiser. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not a humanitarian. I'm a hellraiser. And she really rallied uh, this army of men to fight back 
and she was very instrumental. And there were a lot of other incidences of, of what the women were doing and, and how they, they fought it. And they, you know, as I, as I keep digging through these historical documents, you know, it just occurred to me that the women, they were responsible for the home, the children, keeping the family fed, keeping the fire going, mm-hmm. uh, chopping the wood, you know, doing all these things. And then when they were evicted from their their company homes and they lived in a tent colony for over a year and they were, you know, they had a, a huge burden on them. And I think, you know, being a, a stay-at-home mom in 1912 was very different than being a stay-at-home <laughs> mom today, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're living in a tent colony and there's, you know, starvation and disease running rampant through through the tents. So um, I just wanted to tell the women's, the women's story. I don't think it's, I don't think it's enough stories about Appalachia in general have been told and certainly not about the women and a, a, a small aside to the, the women and coal connection. My own mother was one of the first women to work inside the mine. And that was in the late seventies. And she and seven or eight other women um, had to file a class action lawsuit to get that right to work inside the mine. And when she went to apply um, you know, I was like 13, 14 years old when this happened. So it was very, very impressionable <laughs> young child mm-hmm. um, that she goes to apply for the job. She took all the safety training and all the things you have to do before you can go inside the mine. And she goes to apply and the man looks at her and says, why should I give you a woman a job inside that mine when I have men with families who need these jobs? Mm. And my mom was a single mom. And my parents divorced when I was about 12, and she, and there was no other, you know, Cole was the only game in town. And she looked at him like, my children don't count, and, and he just laughed at her. And so the fight was on, and hmm. she won. Oh, yeah. she she was able to get the job inside the mine. Yeah, they did get, all the women that filed a class action suit got jobs with back pay. Hmm. So it was, uh, it was a... It was a moment, a moment <laughs> in in the history of uh, of coal mining for for certain. Right now, what did she do in the mine, and how long did she do it? Uh, she did everything the men did. You know, you carry. Uh, she was carrying like fifty pound bags of, and I'm, I cannot remember what this stuff was because I haven't been in the mine. Uh, but she did everything the men did, and a lot of the men gave her. Um, a hard time and keep in mind it's a very small town so everybody knows everybody and some of the men really resented her being there and then they i think they saw how hard she was working and um and they she earned their respect over time mm-hmm. but they they did some really really kind of mean things to her the first six seven eight months that she was in there but she she wasn't about to back down mm-hmm. and, and you knew my mother she's this tiny petite, beautiful, Ava Gardner-looking woman. So to even think that she would be inside this mine working this brute labor was um, in itself yeah. kind of people scratching their head. And yeah. I, I think a lot of people thought that it was just a game or a joke to her, that she, she wasn't serious about it. But she she stayed in for quite a few years working. Hmm. And um, were there other women that worked with her, or was she alone or I think that in that particular mine, it was her and um, maybe two other women that were in part of that class action lawsuit. Um, and then the other women in the suit had went to work in, in other mines in the in the area. But it was her and maybe two other women. Mm-hmm. 
Well, this is very interesting material. Kimberly Collins uh, joins us about her historical novel, Blood Creek, which deals with the Appalachian coal mine wars. Um, you Just because you mentioned her, um, maybe just an aside, I, I knew you were going to mention Mother Jones, so I looked her up a little bit. I mean, real name was Mary Harris Jones, an Irish-born American school teacher and dressmaker who became a prominent organized labor representative in a magazine, kind of a left-leaning magazine, is named uh, for her to this day. Uh, and um, she helped coordinate major strikes, and I guess that's what was happening in West Virginia then. Yes. Yes, she was going all over the country um, uh, organizing uh, labor, and she was part of the um, the early socialist party uh, in our country. Um, and she was, you know, all industries. She wasn't just coal. She was, you know, she was doing every, every industry from textile workers, coal mining, steel workers, everything. Um, she was quite a powerhouse. And to be a woman in 1912 doing this and speaking to huge crowds of predominantly men and predominantly male industries was quite unheard of at the time. I mean, women didn't even have the right to vote in 1912. She was she was definitely um, the outlier <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in that area. Now, your novel is set in about that time, right? 1912? Correct. That. Correct. Uh, how did you, I mean, you mentioned somebody told you a story that you don't want to get into and understand that, and, and the story about your own mother, but that was much later in the course of time. Uh, was very interesting, but how did you research this? Well, I started out writing a story about the massacre in Mate One, and in my research, I came upon some really wonderful information about the strike at Paint Creek and Cabin Creek because the um, the Mate One massacre didn't happen until 1920, and the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike took place in 1912, and. I, the more I read, I realized that the mine wars was more than the massacre, and it was a lot of stuff. And I just needed to tell the entire story. I didn't want to cherry-pick the pieces that I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell all of it. And I think the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek strike really is what touched off the mine wars itself. And it lasted for a long time. Um, but the way the miners were treated in Paint Creek was just horrendous. And I just felt that that story, that's where the story needed to start. Mm. And you don't live in the coal mine country anymore, right? I do not. I grew up there and I left when I was about 19. And then I moved to Ohio and then I eventually ended up in Tennessee. And then I was here for maybe eight or nine years. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. for work for about 17 years. And I moved back to Knoxville about five years ago. What was it like growing up there in Mate One? You know, it's looking back at it now because I have a lot of a lot of years of perspective now. Um, it really wasn't bad. It was it was pretty wonderful. We had uh, a great school system at the time, um, and you know, we played in the mountains and we we ran up and down the roads, and it was. It was quiet and calm. We didn't have fast food. If you wanted to go to a movie, it was like a 30-minute drive to get to a movie theater. Um, Most of the moms were stay-at-home moms. Um, 
we had a wonderful community of children in, in our little neighborhood, and we're all still very close to this day. Um, they're like, you know, these girls are like sisters of, mm. of, of other sisters to us. Uh, it was it was good, but it was also um, isolating. You know, the mountains can be very isolating, especially, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s. Uh, it was, that's all you knew. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have mm-hmm. the internet. We didn't have social media. We didn't have all these these things to influence us uh, like uh, that we do today. But it was, um, I think I had a great childhood. I just loved playing in the mountains and the creek and the river. And uh, it was it was pretty good. Now, you don't live there, but what's Maitwan like today? I mean, is the coal industry still going? Uh, it's, it's limping along. And it's... You know, it, it has these surges where it's it's coming back, and then it stops. And then I just read an article this morning, actually, of uh, about 350 coal miners that are being laid off. But when I go home now, which is um, pretty often, you know, we're not up there a lot, but you can still see coal moving. There are trains moving coal. So I think that it's it's eventually going to have to stop just because the coal will eventually run out. But, you know, it's supply and demand. And the, but the town is nothing, the area is nothing like it was when we grew up there. Uh, there are a lot of drugs, a lot of opioids, and, but I think that's almost everywhere in the country now. Uh, it's, there's not a lot of industry. Coal is and always has been pretty much the only game in town. And the coal operators came in and, you know, grabbed all the minerals and then left. Mm. And they left the people there, no infrastructure, no sustainability, no forethought for sustainability at all. And it's, um, you know, jobs are scarce. It's, um, it's, it's very sad, actually, mm. to mm. go home and, and see mm. that it's not the place that it was. But, but tourism is one thing that is taking off pretty well. You know, the Hatfield-McCoy feud started right there in my little hometown of Mate One. Yes. and. And uh, a lot of history in my little town. And the mountains are absolutely spectacular. Now that they've pretty much stopped mining coal, the mountains are flourishing. And there are wild horses everywhere. And in the fall, the mountains are just amazing. And there are a lot of people go there to ride four-wheelers and do the ATV thing and and that sort of stuff. There's a huge festival this coming weekend, actually, in in the area. But... um, I don't know. Coal, I don't think, will ever be the king that it that it has been in the past. Um, and I would really, you know, my hope is that the tourism would really kick off mm-hmm. and and people could find other avenues for, for income yeah. and jobs. Kimberly Collins is author of Blood Creek, a historical novel set in the era of the Appalachian coal mine wars. I uh, hate to take time from your dis- discussion, but as you're d- describing Matewan, it does remind me of my hometown and home area here in upstate New York. I mean, I, in a sense, we're in the Appalachians, and we call them the Adirondacks and the and the Catskill Mountains. And we were, uh, let's say, Amsterdam, where I grew up, was an industrial town. It was the carpet capital of the world for a number of years, but that's all gone. And the population of the city has has declined a great deal, and there are these problems that you allude to. But as with you're talking about um, Matewan, uh, West Virginia, there there's more 
tourism, uh, in a way. Uh, people are very interested in the American Revolution, which, a lot of which was fought in that uh, area. And the moving out of the carpet mills has made the place more livable. I mean, the creeks no longer stink mm-hmm. from, right. the, from the industrial waste and so forth. Right. So, and, and it is just, you know, that, that boom and bust cycle. Uh, and, it, and it comes and it goes. And um, for my, I have a job. Uh, and my job, I just had a project in Butte, Montana. And they, it's a mining town. But they were mining copper, mostly. And it's the same, the same thing. I mean, you just, it's a different mineral different extraction process but it's the same the same issue um and when i when i worked in washington dc i worked on a um, department of defense program for destroying chemical weapons that are stored here in the country and they're you know going into these really small towns where these weapons are stored and they're building these huge facilities to destroy them but they they took the time and i think that the government has gotten smart over time uh, or the people have gotten smart and demanded these things but they have a whole sustainability program for when the weapons are destroyed and the army moves, they move out and they're gone, you know, they're trying to avoid that, that boom and bust cycle. Um, and it's really too bad that the coal operators had no, no care to hmm. even do that in southern West Virginia. Kimberly Collins uh, with us, author of the historical novel Blood Creek. We'll be back with her in uh, just a moment. This is the Historian's Podcast, and we depend on your contributions to keep our podcast on the Internet. You can go to our GoFundMe page, gofundme.com forward slash 2019 dash the dash historians, and you can make a donation there or make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, one two three zero two. We're talking with Kimberly Collins, her historical novel about the Appalachian coal mine war and the role of women in that uh, part of American history. Her novel is called Blood Creek. Let me focus on the novel. You tell us about Ellie Klein, who may be your protagonist, or she's one of the important characters in the novel. Is she? What is what is she, or who is she, and is she based on an historical character? No, so Ellie is, uh, you know, I, I like to love to hate her and hate to love her, uh, but I think I really love her. Uh, Ellie is actually based on a, on a real person, and in part one of Blood Creek, Ellie's life, I try to stick really close to the facts of her life, but in part two, she ventures off into a lot of fiction. Um, but never fear in book two of the Mingo Chronicles, she definitely comes back to her, to her, her real life for the most part. Um, Ellie is a woman way ahead of her time. And the real Ellie was as well. The real Ellie uh, did things that even today would shock Mm. most people. Can you tell us who was the real Ellie or do you not want to say that? Oh no, no, that's not fine. So Ellie, uh, Ellie was married to my brother-in-law's great-grandfather, and that's how I came to know about Ellie. And I had heard just little dribs and drabs of Ellie and Tom Chapin, and um, and then I was reading one of the books I was reading for the research for Blood Creek. I happened upon just a snippet about Tom Chapin. He, ki- he killed two men uh, because of Ellie, and, and I was just fascinated. With the idea that Ellie was doing, you know, she was cheating on her husband with 
a lot of people. And, you know, in 1910, 1911, this was just horrific for a woman to be doing these things. I think mm-hmm. now people pretty much don't bat an eye at some of these things. Right. Uh, so I go to my brother-in-law and his cousins and his father, and I'm getting the full scoop on Ellie. And by all accounts, Ellie was a stunning, raven-haired, just a beautiful woman and very manipulative and pretty much got whatever she wanted. And I just kept hearing these stories, and I was I was mesmerized by Ellie. And I just I knew that she needed to be she needs to be my main character. Whether she's the villain or the heroine is I'll leave that up to the readers. I think I think she might be a little bit of both. Um, but Ellie Ellie does some things that are very questionable. Uh, again, even today, I would I would be looking at this person thinking, "What in God's name are you doing?" Mm-hmm. Uh, but she really did a lot of a lot of questionable things, but she, in the book, uh, the fictional Ellie also does some very wonderful things, but she, she it's always about Ellie and it's Ellie's, uh, she's not going to do anything that's not going to get her further down the line to where she wants to be. So she kind of plays both sides of the street, if you will, the, the mine owners and the mine workers or. She does. Yeah. She, she ends up in, in Charleston on, uh, on the arm of one of the Baldwin Phelps men. And so she's privy to a lot of information, um, that they think that she's beautiful and young and, and not very, she's a woman and she can't be very smart. She doesn't understand men's, men's business, but, uh, Ellie's very smart and she's very cunning. And so she uses this information when she realizes that Baldwin Phelps is going to, um, attack her sister who's living at Paint Creek and they're going to kick her out of her house and that it, it's you know, her sister could be in peril. So she uses all the information she can gather from her, her lover. Mm-hmm. And, and she acts basically as a spy and she carries information to the miners and alerts them before these things happen so that they're prepared. So she definitely, she's playing both sides of the fence with it, but she's not about to give up her cushy lifestyle mm-hmm. that she's, that she has. So uh, she she definitely is playing both sides of the street. But and that's true of your fictional Ellie. Was it true of the real Ellie, or don't you know? Uh, no, no. Uh, Ellie, uh, the real Ellie, I don't think ever went to Charleston. But she she does some things that uh, in her real life. Uh, I, I really don't want to give it away. All right, don't give it away. <laughs> because in the next book, it, it will. It's <laughs> definitely a a turning point for Ellie in the next book. Um, so no, so I, I from part two, Ellie's world is complete fiction. Now, uh, Kimberly Collins with us. Her, her novel is Blood Creek. Uh, in addition, you say you have a job and you've written this novel and I believe one other, but you're also a photographer and you have this very, I don't know what to call it, haunting picture on the cover of the book uh, showing a woman up to her, shot from the rear up to her waist almost in, in water. Um, why did, what is that picture? I mean, is, why, is, why is it significant to you? So the lovely person on the cover is my niece, and she is Tom Chapins, who's in the book. She is his great-granddaughter, and her name's Natalie. And Natalie and my younger sister, Dion, we spent a weekend in West Virginia taking photos for the book cover. And I knew on my other book, Simple Choices, um, is a photo that I took as well. And I wanted, 
I wanted to keep with that theme and I wanted, I wasn't sure what I wanted for the cover when we, when we went on the photo shoot and the girls were fabulous. We were on the railroad tracks. We were in tunnels. We were in the mountains. We were in the river. We were everywhere we could be. And Natalie, I'm like, would you care to get in the water? And she's like, yeah, sure. So she gets in the water and the dress just starts floating up and I just kept snapping and it was just, it was just a magical moment. And, and that was the photo that we chose and I had not named the book and I had not written. There's a scene where Ellie is in the river contemplating um, suicide and I hadn't written the scene. I hadn't named the book or anything. And the photo really kind of set the tone I think for the story and for for Ellie. Well, so that kind of explains it to me. She's in the river contemplating suicide. Mhm. Oh. Yes. And the river I believe I was reading some of your material is in the is the Tug River and you say that's a, an important part of that area of West Virginia. Yeah, the river uh growing up the river played such an important part in the lives of the people who lived along the river. And all the little towns were situated pretty much on the river because the river would flood, violently flood every spring. And I mean, you just set your clock to it. <laughs> every April, the river's going to flood. And it would sometimes flood horrifically and just wipe people out. And in 1977, the river literally wiped out almost every town that sat along her banks. And it was a devastating flood that we had never seen before. And I don't think a lot of the little towns really recovered after that, especially mate one. So after that flood in 77, the Corps of engineers came in and they built flood walls in most of these towns so that the river to block the river from flooding. And for mate one, they actually walled off the town. So you couldn't drive through town. You can't drive through town anymore. You have to go around the railroad tracks and really? around the loop and, and loop through town. So they, they basically saved it and decimated it all in, in, in one, one action. Hmm. Well, another uh, similarity with the area that I grew up in, that, you know, it's maybe kind of the base for many of the stories we tell. We have rivers too, uh, the Mohawk, the Hudson and countless creeks and a lot of flooding. Uh, and it's getting in general, I've, over the years, it's gotten worse, I would say. Yes, yes. And and so then after they, you know, they saved the town with the flood wall and, and the river, um, the river had a lot of coal runoff for years. And it was not a river that you would want to, you know, when, when we were little, it was, it was clean. And then over the years, it just so much coal runoff and it, it became very dirty and people would throw their garbage in it. And it was just really nasty, <laughs> not a river that you would want to fish in or swim in or have any recreation in. And then in the, about the past 10 years or so, you know, since coal has, has dwindled greatly, uh, the people in the area have cleaned up the river. Um, we have canoe races and kayaking and an airboat and all kinds of wonderful things on the river now. And it's turned into a great recreation um, area. Mm. But, but after, you know, we, we, so we think that we're all saved from the flooding of the river. And she still does fill her banks and there's still some flooding but not as devastating as it used to be but now the um a few years ago they discovered natural gas 
in the mountains. So they come in and they chop all the trees down to lay gas line. And so now there's nothing holding the mountains back. So when there's any kind of rain, this like flash floods, like devastating flash floods coming out of the hollers and, and down into the valleys. And it's just, it's just horrific. It's like, you can't win, you know, when you're a beautiful area and you have all these fabulous extractable minerals, there's someone who's going to come in and destroy the beauty of it. Well, Kimberly Collins, we're just out of time. Sounds like a fascinating book. She is author of Blood Creek, a historical novel set in the early 20th century, the era of the Appalachian coal mine wars. Kimberly Collins and the book Blood Creek. You've been listening to the Historians Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.